This is Emergency Care in Scotland. I'm Stuart Ramsey. I'm a paramedic who works at Glasgow East Station. Today I'm joined by Natasha Beach, who works for the LTA and has a company in event medicine based down in England. Um, so Natasha, how are you? Yeah, I'm great. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Tell us just a bit about your career and what you're doing just now and how you ended up there. Uh, it's a good question. I'll try and keep it as succinct as I can. Um, so essentially I'm a doctor by training um, and knew I was always going to go into sports medicine. Uh, in the UK to go into sports medicine you have to start with a different specialty first. So I started with general practice, so completed my GP training. Uh, and from that point onwards I started the sports medicine training in London. Uh, so I finished that back in 2016, 2017. Um, and from that point, you're kind of free range and you're free to do whatever you like. Um, so I have very much what we would call a portfolio career where I see private patients who are both sporty, non-sporty. Um, and they're from, you know, right down to the age of six up until I think my oldest patient at the moment is in their 90s. Um, so that's kind of several days a week. Uh, another two days a week, I work for the Lawn Tennis Association and primarily that role is looking after their elite performance athletes. So all the names that you'll see during Wimbledon, they're kind of the, the athletes that I look after on a daily basis. And then on top of that, um, I've got a bit of a passion for the event medicine industry. And I set up back in 2014 a sports medicine company called Sports Medics that sets out to do event medical cover in a slightly different way to other companies. We're very um, healthcare professionally led. So lots of doctors, lots of nurses, lots of physios. Um, and we do major events around the UK, both mass participation and international standard tournaments. So I met you, we were working at the Davis Cup together. Um, you yep. were doing your cover for the players. Team GB were Correct. there. There was lots of big names. Um, and I was there with the Scottish Ambulance Service. We were covering that event. Um, what is your kind of nine to five when you're working at an event, one of the elite tennis events? Uh, for a start, it's definitely not nine, nine till five, as you'll recall. I think you were there maybe the day we were still there at two in the morning. Yeah. Um, tennis is a sport that doesn't have an end point. It doesn't have a, we'll all be wrapped up by 8pm, particularly at an indoor tournament like the Davis Cup. Um, so if every match goes to three sets and every single one of those goes to a tie break, which is essentially what happened, we can have a very, very long day. Um, for the Davis Cup, there were, there were four nations at this particular tournament um, playing in kind of a round-robin format. Um, and so every day is slightly differently. You've got different atmospheres, so particularly you know, with the crowds, when the days GB were playing, there was a big crowds, big atmosphere. Some of the other days was a little bit quieter. Um, but at the end of the day, the, the tennis is, is kind of the same. Um, with Davis Cup for team events the like that. The day we were there, Andy Murray was playing and it went on very late and he was unhappy. And the same thing happened in Australia. <laughs> um, but then, like yep. you were saying, we ended up even later because there was a lovely lady who obviously wasn't feeling very well, but waited until the very end of when all the crowd were leaving, she decided she couldn't get up because she wasn't well. And then we had to figure out, she didn't need to go to hospital, but we ended up having to figure out 
she couldn't drive and there's no one else she knew could drive and we ended up there till like an hour and a half after the event had finished yeah long long days and then back at what 7am the following morning to do it all again do you think they will would they change that is it too late are some of the games going on too late for the athletes it's it's difficult you don't want to start them off too early in the morning because the athletes all have a degree of prep time so they've got routines that they need to follow they need to get up a certain amount of time have breakfast warm up physically on the court but also they'll have various strength and conditioning exercises to do that whole process is two two and a half three hours um and it's hard to do you it's hard to get motivated at that kind of you know for an eight o'clock match that's a very early start so i can see why the matches start a little bit later and at the end of the day these these competitions also happen in front of a crowd and if they're if the crowd are being asked to come at eight o'clock in the morning we know from experience they're not going to turn up till later on in the day um so it's getting that it's getting that balance right and you know two o'clock in the morning is a very late end for any players Andy obviously had that epic match over in Australia as well that went on till the silly o'clock in the morning it's tough it's really tough but I think unless you have physically less matches per day and make the tournaments longer then that's a problem that we're always going to have I'm sure they would figured out a better way of doing it if it was possible sure there was a bit of jet lag in there which made him a wee bit grumpier as well i actually think the jet lag from because they were all coming from the us open i actually think it was helpful because it meant that they were on a slightly different time zone um but yeah i mean various players are grumpy anyway it doesn't matter who it doesn't matter what time of day it is <laughs> right so let's say we talk about your job during a day so typical day you're in charge if an athlete gets injured or they've got an ongoing injury and they need assessed you will i think i remember you were facilitating a ct scan for somebody when i was there uh what is it you do day to day for your athletes um i think the one thing i'd say about my job is there's no such thing as a standard day um prime example uh, my background is currently not my own house i'm currently in a hotel in birmingham working for british athletics and i'm waiting for athletes to arrive so i'm basically you know sat on standby in case i'm required yeah in a couple of days time we move into the arena and it will be the uh, indoor grand prix which will all be on television and that's when i i change mode and i'm there more for the athletes while they're on the track and then when they come back to the hotel they become my responsibility again back here so there's definitely no standard day um certainly at the lta i can have days where it's purely admin driven filling in forms doing cardiac screening um requesting medication you know ordering more needles and syringes like basic basic stuff equally it can be a really manic day like particularly after the australian open we gained a number of players who flew back with all sorts of different injuries and they need scans and they need injections and they need management plans and referrals on for secondary care and it it can be really full on um so it's kind of swings and roundabouts from a tennis perspective the grass court is the busiest time of year for us so once you know Queens, Nottingham, Wimbledon, when that's all on the horizon. Everyone gets a bit more twitchy and, and you know, everyone wants everything done immediately. So it's it's pretty busy then. What kind of challenges do you face at events when you're working for the LTA? Um, I, I think about kind of event medicine for athletes. There's been quite a few high profile cardiac arrests, like sudden cardiac arrests. 
I can't think of any. Has that happened on tennis courts? No, not yet, but don't Touch jinx wood? it. <laughs> yeah. no. no, nothing yet from a tennis perspective, but it's it's definitely on the radar. Yeah, so you, you'll have to be prepared for that, as will the event company or the ambulance service that's covering the event. And then we'd also have to be... Um, there was a lot of coverage, I noticed, post-COVID, there was coverage of football fans being unwell. And mm-hmm. for some reason, the television cameras were kind of looking into the crowd. And a lot of my friends were asking me, well, that never used to happen before COVID. But I've worked at Rangers and Celtic Games and kind of mass events. And the amount of people you have is going to, you're going to be more likely to have somebody who's medically unwell. That's got nothing to do with them being at the event. Mm-hmm. It would have happened at home. How do you prepare for that kind of thing happening, both with athletes and members of the public or spectators and is there a difference in the kind of care they would get or what's likely to be wrong with them that they would need emergency care i think for me it all starts in the planning phase so for each event um i normally set aside at least six days of solid planning for it and that's you know everything from site visits writing medical plans meeting up with the local ambulance service uh, for that region that we're working in, um, pulling up data from previous events. So, for example, if we're doing a major international event, in theory, there should be medical reports from previous events. So you can get a flavour for what you're going to expect um, and, and you plan around that. But you also look at kind of what's going on. So, for example, in just in general events, not the, not the tennis events, but in general, the rate of cardiac arrest has gone up hugely since COVID. It's still a little bit unexplained to why. Um, and so obviously post-COVID, yeah, remember you to prepare everything. Sorry, I remember you telling me about this when we were speaking, which I got really got interested in. And I think last week, my ambulance station dealt with two heart attacks, so myocardial infarction, with someone under the age of 35. So there's mm-hmm. two in the space of a week. And uh, obviously it's something that doesn't happen very often, but it would happen before COVID. And you don't know if you're just listening out for these things and then thinking, oh, I heard that person had a heart attack, someone with that age. But you, what you were telling me before COVID, there was a specific figure that you planned for cardiac arrest per, per participant, I think it was. Yeah, so with our event data, um, we bear in mind we do big events so there'll be like twenty thousand people doing a marathon or a half marathon or a tough mudder or whatever whatever it it would be and the data we had pre-covid was that for one in five hundred thousand participants it didn't matter what the sport was um but participants one in five hundred thousand would have a cardiac arrest and nearly all of those were shockable so you know fantastic success rates in fact we had a hundred percent success rate pre-covid um, post-COVID, that's absolutely turned on its head, and we now our data is showing that it's one in fifty thousand, and predominantly wow. non-shockable. Um, and there's lots of different theories being banded around of you know, is it vaccine? Have they had COVID? Are they less fit? Are they doing more exercise because of furlough? The honest answer is we don't know, but we're clearly seeing a massive difference. And that's just something, again, you have to, when you're planning your events at the moment, you have to plan for that change that we're seeing. 
Um, you know, like I said previously, they were shockable. So actually, you know, if we were involved in a cardiac arrest scenario, obviously involves a significant number of people um, from the medical team. But generally, you know, it was for a short period of time, and you know, could you could redistribute those people back to their normal roles relatively quickly. Now, so we could just talk about period. if it's a shock of algorithm or not. So what's the difference, just for anyone who's listening that might not understand, why would you get, so you've got two types of cardiac arrest when your heart stops. The one will be your heart is fibrillating or shaking and then mm-hmm. you deliver an electric shock, which hopefully will surprise it back into a normal rhythm. And the other one is asystole or a non-shockable rhythm which an electric shock isn't going to help that. Correct. So why would you think that they've got it's gone from one to the other? Uh, honest answer, not got a clue. Um, it's, I mean, the pre-hospital cardiac arrest data, not our own, but globally is you're meant to have a 10% survival is, is the number I always hear figured or banded around as a figure. Um, our data was clearly much better than that. I mean, we were at 100% after nine cardiac arrests um, over, I think it was like a six, six seven year period. Um, and I very much. Is this your company's to, data we're talking yeah, about? My own company's yeah. data. And that was very much put down to how quickly we can get there, how many defibs are around, and then obviously the, medi- the, the clinical skills of the medics who are then there to, to provide additional support. Um, now, you know, we're still doing all of that. And in fact, we're putting in more medics and more equipment. In fact, we're now putting in more um, automated chest compression devices because we know that patients' downtime, unfortunately, is now significantly longer. Um, and it's, yeah, we, we just don't know. We just don't know. And it's, and it's not just our data that's showing this. Certainly colleagues in other events um, that I'm aware of, be it marathons, triathlons, half marathons, Ironmans, we're all seeing the same pattern. Um, it's what it's about a key hospital patterns? Is that the same, or are you aware of anything? So like I've that? asked around, and anecdotally, I am getting rumours that we are seeing this in hospitals as well. Um, the difficulty with working in hospitals is obviously everyone, particularly in A and E, is in shift work, and you know you don't necessarily put two and two together. If you've had a cardiac arrest, you could have two on the same day in the same department, but it could be different teams. Uh, responding and not necessarily putting that data together at two two more patients and i'm i am speaking to people like yourself who are working in kind of frontline and saying you know, are you seeing this and broadly the answer i'm getting back is yes yes we are um but we can't currently explain it yeah i would agree the the consultant that does the other half of this podcast we talk about medical conditions and treatment in and out of hospital and we I was asked because I knew you were coming on here I was asking her the same and she says that she thinks she is seeing more cardiac arrests Mm -hmm. but then there's obviously going to be a lot of biases around like if you start you when you start thinking am I seeing them and then every time you see one you remember it whereas in the past you would just be like oh another one yeah but for you generally you would have one cardiac arrest that's a shockable rhythm in one in 500,000 participants in our large event and now that number is potentially 1 in 50,000 and it's a non-shockable arrest and then so historically I would say so VF or shockable arrest usually it's a healthy it can be a healthy person and you're more likely Mm -hmm. to be able to shock their heart back into a normal rhythm 
rather than a medical issue that has caused the heart to stop, which yeah. is then usually your non-shockable rhythm, which can still be fixed depending, potentially depending on what the cause is. Mm -hmm. But that's really interesting. Yeah. But then there's not been any, you, you've not noticed any tennis players collapsing and going into cardiac arrest? No, not yet. <laughs> and let's hopefully you, not. There was actually, there was a goalkeeper in, I can't remember what team it was, but that was recent, like last week, this week maybe, was another sudden cardiac arrest. Oh, I didn't see that. Was um, that in the UK? Was that a yeah, it was. It was, I'll try and find it. So what was it that made you, so we've kind of crossed over between your lawn tennis association role and your event medicine role. So what made you start up? your company um I, I don't really know is the honest answer it wasn't a plan um i was essentially i was doing my diploma in sports medicine down in bath um and they encouraged us to go and get experience in different fields of sports medicine actually at that stage it was really hard because it was a really small world and trying to find the right people who would let you in and I did a course that doesn't exist anymore called Remo, which was um, a pre-hospital emergency course, essentially. And one of the instructors on there um, over dinner said, oh, you know, why don't you come along for a triathlon? And, you know, I work in a medical team, get some experience that way. And I did. And I loved it. And then um, the lady who ran that company about a year later decided that she didn't want to do it anymore. And everyone kind of looked at me and went, well, you were taking over. And I was like... I'm quite junior. Um, don't really know anything about the event industry. And I just didn't really know what to do about it. Um, roll on a few years, and I, I was away with England Hockey in Belgium, and I get this random phone call from a company that I'd never heard of, but a lot of people have called Tough Mudder. Um, and basically ringing and saying, will you come and be our medical director and set up everything for us? And I was like, wow, I don't really have a team, and I don't really have any equipment, but yeah, why not? Um and, you know, pulled the original team together who had done triathlon and um, did a lot of research, an awful lot of research and visited some of the <coughs> events and other kind of um, competitor events. Um, and that was kind of it, really. And it, we hit the ground running and it was it was hard. It was really hard. It's probably the hardest event medically to deal with because you get thrown everything at you from minor injuries like lots of people who are cold who've got cuts and bruises and just sore um to you know the opposite end of the extreme fractures dislocations awful lots of shoulder dislocations um cardiac arrests obviously because again you know put that many people through an event you know you're going to start getting cardiac arrests anaphylaxis um and we learned so much so so much very quickly um and it kind of grew from there. Once we started to do that, other companies started to contact us and say, well, will you come and do our events? Um, and yeah, it's just kind of snowballed, really. Um, like we've never gone out and said, oh, we want to do your event. We want to take this on. Um, we've always just kind of been approached by companies that said, you know, we want you to come and do it. Um, and so that's kind and of. You were telling really... me you're quite. You've got a lot of clinicians working for you, registered healthcare professionals. What would other, do other event companies, what do they usually run with and is it regulated? So it, <laughs> uh, is it regulated? Well, that's the easy answer. No. 
um, the event industry is entirely unregulated. Um, the CQC, which is in England, um, otherwise known as the Quality Care Commission, they have a slightly tenuous link to regulation for the event industry. So if you're a medical company that supri supplies ambulances that then take patients to hospital, the CQC want to know that you're up to scratch for that. However, if you are a company that doesn't have ambulances, um, like my own, like we don't we don't provide our own vehicles, we work with another company who does. Um, or if you're a company that has ambulances but slightly tries to play the system and keep them only on site and use 999, for example, to take patients to hospital, um, then we're actually entirely unregulated. Um, and I was having this chat with a tennis player earlier, kind of explaining that, you know, essentially she as a tennis player with no medical knowledge in theory could set up a medical company today, set up a website, turn up at an event and deliver medical cover. And at the moment, there is no way to know that, you know, the people that at that event medically are trained, know what they're doing, have the right equipment. There's just there's no checks whatsoever. Um, and if anyone's seen the BBC News article today that's come out about Brixton Academy, it kind of it kind of touches on that a little bit. And the fact that that particular event, as far as the article gives um, evidence of, is that, you know, they didn't have the full numbers of staff that they should have done as per the guides um, at that event. But who's checking that? And that's that's kind of the problem in the event industry at the moment. That was similar to the Manchester bombing report as well. Yeah. So the, the Manchester inquiry came out uh, from the bits that I've read and basically said, you know, the first aiders, you know, what level of training they have. And also it was only first aiders. There was no docs, nurses, paramedics, response vehicles, ambulances. There was there was nothing else with it. Um, and it, yeah, it just comes back to, you know, we've got event companies. There's some brilliant, brilliant event companies out there. I've worked with some fantastic ones. Scottish Ambulance Service, obviously I'm endorsing. Um, given you guys, I actually picked you to come and work with us for the for the Davis Cup and um, and the Billie Jean King Cup. Um, but there are Pick you me could, specifically. Absolutely, absolutely. It's just yeah, it's it's a problem within the event industry at the moment, and it's something that definitely needs to be tackled. Yeah, I've worked at large events and especially so football matches. Just the numbers of people, even if they were just to be that amount of people sitting at home watching TV, one of them is going to end up unwell. And then factor in their journey to the stadium, how long they've been walking about, how tired they are, they've not taken their medication, they've been drinking. It just all goes wrong really quickly when you've got large mm -hmm. numbers of people together. And then, God forbid, like any kind of terrorist attack or the crush accident, if you've not, mm -hmm. even if you do have people who know what they're doing, that's still going to be an unbelievably challenging position to be in as a kind of medical professional having to deal with that. And if you've just got some first aiders that you've signed up, then it's just all going to go going to go horribly wrong. You'd think they would have learnt from all the disasters in the past. <laughs> with uh, Well, you'd, uh, I think until somebody says, guys, this is a problem, then people aren't really clocking it's a problem. I think if you said to the general public, do you realise that, you know, the medical team at your event today, we don't even know if they are actually got any medical qualifications. They'd be astounded that there is no regulation given, you know, you go to hospital, you know that that doctor who's treating you has been checked and has gone through interviews and passed their exam certificates, been looked at. The nurse who comes and gives them their medication, you know, 
you know where they've trained, you know what their record is, they do annual certifications. There's none of that in the event world. And, you know, I'd argue, actually, we work in higher risk environments. Like, we can be in quite difficult locations, like Tough Mudder. We could be at the bottom of, of massive muddy pits. We can be at the top of massive obstacles with someone with a dislocated shoulder trying to get them down. We're actually in unique environments dealing with, you know, anything and everything in terms of patient without the backup that you've got from you know hospital equipment yes we've got a lot of equipment personally we carry an awful lot but that's the decision we've made to to you know have as much as we can possibly have um but there's no it's just no regulation and it's it's scary it's really scary am i right in thinking you do the cover for the london marathon no i do manchester marathon and Manchester Half Marathon, um, and in London we currently do London Winter Run as well. Um, so what kind of preparation would you have to put in for the Manchester Marathon? How many people <laughs> are running it, just um, briefly? Running, oh, I think the current data for this year is something like 27,000, something like that. So it's the second biggest marathon behind London, um, as far as I'm aware, it certainly was. Um, in terms of the medical team on site, oh, there's well over 100 of us. Um, it's something like, off the top of my head, 15 ambulances and 30 doctors and 10, 12 nurses, plus plus loads of first aiders as well. Um, so it's a huge, huge operation. Um, our medical tent this year for Manchester is going to have 28 majors beds. Um, so, you know, it's we're rivalling london teaching hospitals in terms of the number of patient beds that we're going to have um and that's yeah, just, just for some context line. majors majors beds in glasgow there's probably 20 in the royal infirmary and there's probably another 20 in the queen elizabeth so you've almost got as much as that for this <laughs> one event that we have that covers the whole city of glasgow <laughs> and more yeah and uh, you know when we talk about majors patients in a marathon vast majority of those that are on those beds are unconscious or fitting um with low consciousness levels um and that's generally due to heat exertion so they've they've literally cooked themselves from exercise um and you know it's relatively basic medicine to get them better it's cooling them rapidly and recognizing when that isn't working um but it's it's busy it's a really tough day for the team on the ground um but you know it's why we do it and it's why we plan for it and why we have 400 kilos of ice on site or 700 kilos of ice i think it is like the amount of of kit that's required is huge um but at the end of the day we wouldn't do it if we didn't love it yeah and i mean it's the last thing on earth anyone thinks signing up for a marathon is they're going to die at it so hopefully any <laughs> anything we can do to stop that happening maybe reverse something that's happened it's always going to be good yeah i mean any like I say it's a numbers game and yes you're making people run a marathon but put that many number of people together you're always going to get patience so just to finish off what advice would you give to i mean a lot of students listen to this and a lot of qualified staff listen to this so anybody who's working in event medicine just give us some of your top tips for that before we go so the one thing 
I think it notices the team on the day varies from day to day. So you could do the day, two day, two events back to back, but your teammates that you were working with might be different people. Um, and so it's vital that you do run throughs of emergency drills wherever you are. So, for example, at the marathon, we will do a several run throughs of a collapsed patient from the finish line. That patient gets taken into main med. We run through the scenario of whatever it is, whether it's anaphylaxis, cardiac arrest, heat, whatever. And that run through also continues getting them into the ambulance. So it's a full patient journey from finish line to ambulance so that we're absolutely sure in everyone's roles. Everyone knows where equipment is like, you know, very different to have it being in an ambulance where you've got your kit all in certain locations. You always know where it is. You know, every every event I go to, my marquee or my medical room is a totally different shape. You have to put things in different places. You've got to react to your environment. So I think my number one is make sure you rehearse. And you might be there going, oh, but I've taken someone off a pole vault bed 20 times already as a practice. Why am I doing it again? Pole vault beds change in terms of how, how you know, saggy they are, for example. Taking someone out of a long jump pit, sand gets in the scoop. Um, it's things that you need to, to practice. So that's that's kind of my number one. And, and check your kit and know your kit. Um and also make sure you know how to use a radio. Sounds like a really basic thing, but the number of people who cannot use a radio properly and that's your main form of communication in an event. So definitely if you're not sure, please ask someone to help you use a radio. You need, you need to hold the button down for two seconds before you speak and yep. then give it two <laughs> seconds before you let go after you finish speaking. Yeah, and also be clear, no, I think know where you are. That's the other thing. You know, If you've got a patient and you want backup, Give us an exact location. If you've not looked at what three words as an app, please download it. It's an invaluable tool to kind of helping us. So particularly if we're in event control and you've got a patient that's saying we need backup, we need to know where you are and we need specifics. So what three words is a definite for downloading. Yeah, and a lot of these events, they have mile markers and the numbers on them and they can you can say I'm at this one, but what three words is better than that. So just get that and use that. Yeah, I think you're you're totally right. It's practicing. You you do these things all 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 the time in emergency medicine, but then practicing in this new environment you have. And I think the most important thing for someone who's worked at events is having the kind of you just need to make sure you find the person that's in charge at the very beginning of the event, speak to them, and then make sure that they've got a way of getting in touch with you, mm-hmm. and your expectations are meeting up. And I always ask, so you, for instance, when I worked with you, you're in charge of athletes, but it was more than possible we were going to get a random member of the crowd who's unwell. And then I spoke to you and you were very proactive about, you said you would obviously be involved in that and Mm -hmm. you would be available if we needed any help. And knowing that you had that kind of input put me at ease straight away, knowing I've got you for help. And then if I hadn't asked that, I suppose it makes you think, why hasn't this person come and spoken to me? Who's mm. who's actually covering or what their, what's their purpose here? Yeah, I think, I mean, we know that like at that, tra- that event particularly, you've got crowd cover and you've got athlete cover. And on paper, they're separate entities. The reality is we're all medical professionals. We should be able to help each other out. Um, you know, particularly if there's a major incident, I don't want to be meeting you for the first time mid-major incident. I'd rather speak to you in advance. And then if something happens, we already have an idea of each other's skill sets, where we're based. 
you know how many medics I've got, I know how many are working with you. Um, and that's vital. Like, we shouldn't be seen as totally separate entities. Yes, we've got different roles and responsibilities on the day, but equally, I am never going to turn someone down. If someone says to me, the spectators, they're really struggling, we've got two cardiac arrests at once, or someone else has fallen down the stairs, can you help? Absolutely, I'm going to come and help. Just like I would hope if I was in a scenario where my ambulance crew have left with a patient and I've got someone that I need help log rolling, for example, that I can call on you guys to come down and help me. Um, it's one team. At the end of the day, we're all trying to achieve the same thing. And and I say this to all the, the medics that work for me. Everyone we're looking after is essentially a private patient. They have all paid to be there. Um, oh, sorry, they've paid for us to be there, essentially. Whether you're an athlete who's paid an entry fee or the nation has paid their entry fee or you're a spectator who's bought a ticket, that money is going to us to provide their care. And it might seem that it's a really minor thing. They're asking for a blister plaster or they've, you know, they just want you to shut your elbow and you're thinking, oh, what a waste of time. Why are you asking me to see this? They're paying for our knowledge and, you know, we should treat every patient with respect, whether they've got a minor injury or a really major injury. Um, and I think that's really important. No, that's amazing. That's an amazing perspective on it. And yeah, it's perfect because then when you are in a bad mood and you're grumpy and you've got this idiot who needs paracetamol, don't forget they've paid for it. So yeah. give them what they paid for. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. That's This has honestly been amazing. Oh, no, I've enjoyed it. It's been good. That was Dr. Natasha Beach, who is a sports physician with the Lawn Tennis Association and director of event medicine based in London. The goalkeeper I was talking about was actually from Belgium. His name was Arnie Espiel. He was only 25 and died following a sudden collapse after saving a penalty. Thank you for listening to Emergency Care in Scotland. Please follow on Twitter, Spotify and Apple.